Hello everyone and welcome to the Green Minds podcast, a podcast dedicated to thought-provoking conversations on climate change and sustainability. My name is Eva and I'm your host for this episode. Today's guest is Henry Gordon-Smith, who is a sustainability strategist focused on urban agriculture, water issues and emerging technologies. He has visited urban farms in five continents and worked on community and for-profit urban farms. Henry holds a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science and graduated with a Master of Science in Sustainability Management from Columbia University and started exploring urban agriculture in 2011. In 2013, he co-founded the Association for Vertical Farming and served on the board until July 2017. In 2014, as an answer to a global need for technology agnostic guidance on urban agriculture, Henry launched the advisory firm Agritecture, which is now consulted on over 250 urban and climate smart agriculture projects in over 40 countries. Agritecture primarily helps entrepreneurs with vertical farming feasibility studies, recruiting and systems design. Apart from that, Henry serves as an advisor to multiple ag tech startups and is on the board of the nonprofit organization Teens for Food Justice. Recently, he started teaching the course Smart Agriculture for a Changing Climate at Columbia University's Sustainability Management Master's program. I'm very happy to talk to Henry about this project in urban agriculture and sustainability, as well as agriculture and vertical farming today. Welcome to the Green Minds podcast, Henry. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much, Ava. It's always funny to hear my whole bio read out loud, but I think it's, <laughs> a, it's you did a great job doing that. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Um, so my first question, I briefly mentioned what agriculture does. Could you please provide a more specific overview of agritecture's role as an advisory services and technology firm and what kind of focus agritecture has on urban and controlled environment agriculture? Yeah, so whenever there's a new segment um, of an industry, in this case, sort of the merging of, let's say, integrating sort of architecture and agriculture, there really was no one that was providing services around the data, the business models, the strategy, things like which crops to choose, what you could grow, how much it would cost to grow it, the various considerations for zoning, et cetera. The, the, the information wasn't there. And so when there's a gap um, between the trend, which is this trend towards growing more food in the city um, and the ability to get the information to execute that trend, there is a, an opportunity and agriculture began as a blog to explore that topic and then the opportunity became clear enough that we turned it i turned it into a consulting company and hired an amazing uh, team of, of experts sort of interdisciplinary experts to execute on that work that i mentioned so the, so what we do is we provide you know exactly what i mentioned those services let's say you're a city and you want to encourage urban agriculture will develop your plan for how to do that, how to incentivize urban farms, how to attract them. Let's say you're a corporation and you wanna apply your newest product to this sector, we'll advise you on how to do that. Let's say you're an entrepreneur planning your first farm, we can help you with that as well. Um, and you can imagine the various client segments from investors to, um, to even architects that we work with to answer these questions. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's very interesting. And I think you founded Agritecture 10 years ago, right? In 2014? Yeah, so, it's, uh, it's, it's, we had our 10 year anniversary. So, it's, it's, so yeah, <laughs> 2014 is when the consulting started. So, um, you know, yeah, so, so it's been 10 years of the consulting itself. And I just looked at the numbers. We've had 287 different consultations now, I think, in 45 countries. 
um, since 2014. And then in 2011, as you noted in my bio, that's when I started as a blog. So it's been a really, it's a really significant part of my life and it's been quite a long journey. That's interesting. And um, would you also like to share a bit what inspired you to found agriculture and venture, venture into the field of vertical farming? And in general, how do you see it contributing to the future of agriculture? Yeah, for me, I wasn't like, I wasn't like a farmer. I didn't grow up on a farm. I didn't grow up with a green thumb, but I was always interested in green spaces in cities. You know, I, I grew up in Hong Kong and Tokyo. These are very dense cities, but there's sort of creative ways that they integrate greenery into the cities. And I was always designing things as a kid, like drawing new cities and buildings. And so I think that was a, a big part of like just leading me to be the agritech that I am now. My father was a civil engineer, um, rest in peace, he just passed away a month ago. And and I think he really inspired me as well to, to like to build things and to construct things and and think about you know the built environment. Um, but I wasn't very strong in math, so it, I didn't really go in that direction once I started going my studies. I, I grew up in different parts of the world, so I, I was studying political science but it's sort of all connected when I had a visiting professor from Mexico, Dr. Raul, Raul Pacheco Vega, and he was an expert on water wars, basically political and physical challenges and battles between nations over water resources. And this sort of blew my mind. Like as a young person, I said, okay, I, I've never seen this on the news. You know, the, I can't believe that countries are fighting over water and like how scary this is. I, I think I think some of the 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 almost like the doomsday Armageddon piece of this, you know, like we're gonna run out of resources, um, inspired like a, almost like a, a combination of like a utopian thinking of like, how could we build cities that can be more resilient to this? And I grew up in cities, so I felt like cities are where the difference is gonna be made, you know, like that's where all the investment is, that's where all the people are now, that's where all the food is consumed now, you know, it's like, Rural areas matter, of course, but we're all moving to cities. You know, 80% of our food is is consumed in cities, uh, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation estimates. So, you know, I, this sort of all was connecting in my mind. I was thinking about these issues and I had experienced blogging. So I started um, some blogs about different sustainability topics to sort of figure out, is this the direction I want to go to sort of test the waters, see if I could find an interest for it myself and enough to continue to do it and see if other people liked it. And agriculture was one of those three blogs and it became more popular and more interesting. So I stopped doing the other two blogs. One was about water and one was about sort of cities and, um, and agriculture. Yeah, really became a significant hobby for me. Um, I started visiting farms. I started running workshops. You know, all of this was unpaid. This was just me doing my thing. I didn't even think I was going to it was just a passion project. You know, I, like, I didn't think it was going to be my career. It was just something that you know, it, it's everybody's hopefully everybody has that moment where they find that thing that they really enjoy. And that was that moment for me. I just I couldn't get enough of it. I couldn't. I loved the designs. I liked learning about the business models. I liked the technology application. Um, I liked hydroponics, which is a big part of growing food in cities because it saves so much water and that connected to the water issues for me. Um, so, yeah, that's really how it started. That's very interesting. Thank you for sharing your journey with us. I think agriculture has grown uh, since that a lot. So today it's a big company. And um, as you <laughs> mentioned, it started small and now it's big. Um, I think many of our listeners already know a lot about vertical farming, but 
I think for all of those who are not that deep into this topic, could you explain a bit of what vertical farming actually is and maybe also what key advantages vertical farming offers over traditional farming methods? Okay, I think in order to do that, I need to give a few more definitions to help people understand what are the various typologies of bringing agriculture into or near cities um, for, let's say, the purposes of, you know, adapting to climate change, which is the main, you know, sort of incentive for me, a reason for me why, why I like to do what I do, okay? So I think the first thing is, you know, urban agriculture, which pretty easy as it sounds, but it really involves any method of producing and transporting and all the systems around that for growing food and managing food in the city. So it's really, it's really quite exciting beyond just production. And urban agriculture can include everything from a community garden all the way up to a greenhouse on a plot, to a greenhouse on a rooftop, or to what you mentioned, which is vertical farming. Now, vertical farming and greenhouses, they fit within a category of agriculture, which the technical term is controlled environment agriculture. Another term that's often used um, for this is indoor growing. Now, some people will say indoor growing doesn't include greenhouses, but it's basically the idea of growing indoors. But controlled environment agriculture is probably the best term, especially if you're looking for academic data and, and technical uh, legitimacy, that's where you find it. And so as the term implies, you're trying to control the environment for agriculture, which means you're trying to control the water, the nutrients, the temperature, the air, the, 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 the wind flow, um, the CO2, uh, the light, literally as much as you can, you're trying to almost create a paradise for the plants um, and trying to cultivate them um, as efficiently as you can um, so or to maximize yield and, and production. Now, as part of that control, you get certain benefits like, you know, using less water in the case of hydroponic systems. And those are common in controlled environment agriculture, both greenhouses and vertical farming on that sort of higher tech spectrum of urban agriculture. And hydroponics is another term that we should probably define, which is, you know, essentially where we grow food with no soil, but we, we replace the soil with sort of substrates, different materials that mimic soil, but they're inert, they don't have nutrients, and we use water, which is rich in oxygen and nutrients to deliver exactly what the plants need. So again, that's a big part of the precision and the control, but those hydroponic systems tend to be recirculating systems, which is why they use so much less water. Because when you water outside, it just goes into the soil. If I water in a hydroponic system, I recapture most of that water and I can reuse it. So I actually use less fertilizer too. Now, there's different levels of control, right? You could, you could see a simple greenhouse, and what does that give me? Well, I get a little bit of season extension. I can grow a little bit longer, or I, maybe you know they don't suffer when it gets as cold, the plants. Or I can have something that's highly controlled, like a vertical farm. Vertical farms basically, um, like a greenhouse, they protect the plants from the environment, but they add additional layers of control by actually replacing the sun with LED, typically LED lights, that create the ideal spectrum for growth. And because we've replaced the sun, we can actually stack the plants on top of each other because we're not dependent upon the sun. So a vertical farm, if you looked at it, typically it would be uh, multiple layers of um, plants, mostly leafy greens that are grown in them, which we can talk about why, um, stacked on top of each other. Maybe every, you know, every two, two and a half feet, you might have a layer of plants and some farms, vertical farms that I've been to have, you know, 20 layers of that. So quite futuristic and a big benefit for obviously growing in the city where you have high real estate costs. You can now suddenly grow these plants, not only in the city with less water, 
with no pesticides, but you can actually grow them year round, right? Because there's no weather in this in this inside of this farm. So urban agriculture includes all those things. Controlled environment agriculture or CEA is the higher tech part of it. Hydroponics is an underlying technology, which is not new, that exists in greenhouses and vertical farms. And we at Agritecture, we like the name implies, we believe in sort of design thinking. When you're when you're trying to select the right farm for the right site in your city, you have a lot of options to choose from. And so we need to remain open. Uh, everything from soil to high-tech vertical farming needs to be considered when we're trying to develop uh, productive urban landscapes through urban agriculture. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And uh, you mentioned that you replace the sunlight with LED lights, for example. I think in our last lecture, Mitigating Climate Change, we learned that vertical farming often involves a lot of energy, energy consumption and related costs. Do you think that's a problem or do you think the benefits overweigh the maybe slightly disadvantages or what would you say? Yeah, I think it's I think it's a it's a problem um, in the short term that needs to be resolved. We can't we can't claim that vertical farming is sustainable agriculture when it tends to emit more carbon per pound of output or kilogram of output of, of biomass because you know most of the time they're powered by non-renewable sources. But you can imagine a future where as this technology has advanced, the efficiency, which we're seeing the efficiency goes, improves a lot, right? We've seen significant, I mean, we're talking about 50% more efficient in light and energy. We've seen huge efficiencies from automation and labor and productivity. So, you know, like anything, um, that's very tech heavy. There tends to be some aspects of exponential improvement. I wouldn't say that vertical farming is an exponentially improving technology, but there are certain underlying technologies within it, like LEDs that are exponential. So one trajectory is vertical farming improving, right? And then the other trajectory is our world sort of getting worse in the face of climate change. Um, and then we have this other one, which is the need to sort of increase renewable energy. And there's sort of this moment in the future you can imagine where those things sort of connect to each other, where the costs of food and the quality of food because of climate change is so um, problematic that vertical farming starts to make sense, even though it's energy intensive, because the grid has more renewable energy on it and because population is high and because we need more of this product and the efficiency of vertical farms has improved. So, in, you know, from a mitigation lens, Certainly from the short term, it doesn't make sense um, because it's 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 emitting more carbon in the short term. From an adaptation lens, it, it makes sense to invest in vertical farming so we have the ability to grow food in a more climate insecure environment where there is more renewable energy on the grid. It's like the electrification of agriculture. We're disconnecting agriculture from its natural resource dependency to some extent and almost electrifying it. So it's also very dystopian in that sense. I think a lot of people might be uncomfortable by the words I'm saying. Um, and again, I, I'm not a proponent of vertical farming over conventional agriculture. I, I really am, am, am proposing a multifaceted approach, but I think it really depends on which lens you're looking at. If it's an adaptation lens, then there certainly is uh, a reason uh, to invest in vertical farming and to encourage it. But we just have to be really honest about the short-term consequences of that investment, um, and and is that is that worth it? You know, we should ask ourselves that question. But in theory, that sort of trajectory I mentioned, there there is a possibility where that 
that could be could be worth it for humanity's sake. Okay, and um, you mentioned that you have worked in many countries and lived in many countries. Is vertical farming a possibility for many regions and places on the earth, or are there some regions that are more suitable for vertical farming or in general controlled environmental agriculture than others? Yeah, I think I really, I really encourage everyone to be very, um, you know, context specific in their solutions. And um, first of all, think about what the problem is. This is what design thinking is. Okay, so like what, what, what you list all the problems related to what you're looking. Okay, and then you list all the possible solutions, and you narrow down both those things to find a match. The simplest form of design thinking, I would say. And and so I, I definitely encourage that. So you know, if we're looking at a place like. Um, um, <clears throat> Lagos, Nigeria, okay, you know, th there are certain uh, food insecurity problems there for sure, but do we need sort of high-tech vertical farms producing leafy greens for Lagos, Nigeria? Is that is that good business? Is that good sustainability sense? Does that improve food security really? I mean, I'm quite, I'm quite doubtful, you know, I, I do get a lot of requests now from Africa and even parts of India, uh, more developing, let's say, less privileged nations that are, you know, wanting to to take part in vertical farming as they see it on the internet and they they see the investment, they see the excitement, but they're not really thinking about it in a sensible way because, you know, the the energy costs and then the fact that the product is going to be more expensive, um, it, it's not really going to be either good business sense, good sustainability sense, or or even improve food access. I think, so. What I think is very interesting and what I'm more of a proponent of is that the lines between these systems start to blur, right? So typically, historically, we've thought about vertical farms as like the most controlled form of controlled environment agriculture. But now we're starting to see, uh, and this has happened before, but now we're starting to see a little bit more of this is we're starting to see like small vertical farms grow the young plants connected to a greenhouse. To me, I could see that happen in Africa, right? When you grow young plants, sometimes they, you know, like a young baby, like they need the best nutrients, they need the most healthy environment, and then they have a better chance of survival. And I could see uh, small vertical farms where you can grow a lot of plants in a small space, very controlled and clean, that doesn't cost that much money because it's small, and you're just growing them for the first five, 10 days, and then they go out even into the field or even into greenhouse. I could see that happening for certain crops that have a lot of diseases on them or where the soil has a lot of disease, you improve the resilience and you have a better chance of survival. And we're starting to see that. So I call this the hybridization of agriculture, not hybridization like a breeding term, but hybridization of the technologies. The lines are blurring. And I think that, that that's really exciting as sort of the global South gets more online, they see these tech innovations and they can sort of hack them and adapt them to their, their local context. So I think that, you know, if we look 10 years in the future, the vertical farms we see in Africa are not going to be the, the vertical farms that we've seen advertised. I think that we already see that in parts of India and South America with what's called simplified hydroponics, where people are taking hydroponic systems and, you know, they're they're making their own versions of it. I've seen um, as on my travels, I've seen people take tables and then line the table in plastic and build a float on it and start a hydroponic farm on that. I've seen people growing up on walls, um, you know, creating vertical systems there. So I think as a someone who loves design and, and, and loves context-specific solutions, I think I like that. Let's blur the lines a bit more, you know, let's let's sort of democratize the methods and see what people come up with 
um, with these typologies. But I don't think that we're going to see, um, I don't think it's the best solution for the global south speaking generally to build high-tech automated vertical farms. And in fact, globally, I think high-tech automated vertical farms, even the next 20 years, are a very minor part of the needs um, and solutions for agriculture. I think it's, it's quite a small drop in the bucket, uh, if, if I'm being frank, about its total impact. Okay. Um, you already talked a bit about the food and food quality. Is there a difference between crops that are grown in vertical farms compared to traditional farming methods? And do you see potentials for improving food quality and in general the nutrition that you can gain from crops that are grown in vertical farms? Yeah, food quality is very important. You know, I mean, we, we invest so many resources to grow the crops. Uh, we It's important that they they actually make us healthy, you know, because those resources are scarce. All that water, all that soil, all those nutrients. Um, it You know, in my opinion, I've visited farms that are low tech and high tech, close to cities, far from cities. And, and some of the biggest factors are, are, are the grower and the operations. You know, when we talk about food quality, one is nutrition, but one is also food safety. And, you know, a lot of food makes us sick because it's not clean or it's, you know, it's it's close to an, an animal farm and the waste from that or the workers don't aren't trained to wash their hands properly and, and food can make us sick, especially some of the crops that, that I work a lot in, which is, you know, leafy greens and and fruits and horticulture, basically. Right. So, um, you know, so in, in those categories, there's, there's quite a bit of food safety issues uh, now. I would love to say, and I think in the earlier part of my career, I would have said, you know, vertical farms are more food safe, which means the quality is better. But I've been in vertical farms where there's huge puddles, where there's staff that aren't practicing food safety properly, where there's contamination that can occur. And so it's really not the technology that inherently makes it food safe. It's the the operations and the leadership. Um, so that's that's hard because it doesn't really help consumers. You're like, how do I know if my farm is actually doing the right job? And I think that's why we need certifi certi certifications related to this, third-party verifications. Um, and there are some, like Global Gap, ISO, even uh, the CEA Food Safety Coalition does some of this. Uh, so I think that in principle, I do still believe that, you know, controlled environment agriculture tends to have less food safety issues uh, because I think they're, they're more... There's more capex to them, and so there's 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 more risk associated, um, which is also why you see less waste in the farms as well as well as higher quality. Now, when it comes to nutrition, I think that you know there's nutrition in the plants comes from a variety of factors, right? In in general, um, it comes from the macro and micronutrients that are required to grow the plants. Now, we can replicate the macro and micronutrients that are commonly needed for plant nutrition in hydroponic systems and deliver exactly the right amounts to plants. So it, from that principle, I feel like we are optimizing nutrition. If I plant in soil, I'm sort of depends how good the soil is. And, and you'd be surprised, but most of the farms of the world don't test their soil. So they really don't know how nutritious it is. They just throw it in there and hope it rains. And that's how most of our food is grown. So, you know, I think if you it's pretty logical to me that more control equals more nutrition, you know? So, so I think in that sense, hydroponics has a leg up on that. I think another reason why hydroponics to me um, and sort of this urban agriculture trend, not even just hydroponic urban agriculture, but even soil-based is freshness. We know that, that certain crops, 
don't transport well once they're harvested. Leafy greens, tomatoes, strawberries, right? How many, how many times have you had a bad strawberry? It's like, it looks good on the outside, but like, you know, you're not getting any nutrition from it, right? And so I think the freshness of it, if you can harvest it and deliver it to the consumer faster, and there's less uh, decline in nutrition after that, that is a huge driver for nutrition, in my opinion. And so I think that that is, um, those are the two major drivers for me, you know, is like how the operation is run and for food safety and for nutrition quality, right? So what nutrients are given to the plant, how it's taken care of, and how fresh it is, how close it goes to the consumer. And there are certain greenhouses that don't deliver locally. Like you have greenhouses in Africa that are shipping to um, Europe. I'm not sure that that nutrition is particularly, you know, impressive. Right, so it's not it's not necessarily fresh. So it's it, it's not the technology itself. It's it's about location. It's about the grower. It's quite complicated. Now, on the other hand, I will say that um, there are micronutrients in the soil that we cannot always replicate in hydroponic systems. Uh, there are attempts to do organic hydroponic systems, but those are problematic for various reasons. Um, and so there are micronutrients that we just don't replicate. And so do we know what those micronutrients do for our health? We don't really know. We don't really understand if we need all of those micronutrients. But I think as someone who does love soil and love the planet, to me, it feels like, a it's not scientific, I would say, but it feels intuitive to me that, you know, there's no better way we can get food than having the fullest spectrum of micro and macronutrients from the soil, assuming that soil is healthy, and assuming that soil has those micro and macronutrients in it. So, you know, if we could grow everything in sort of regenerative systems that have maximum biodiversity in the soil and above the soil, that would be the ideal. But the reality is we have enormous population. We've damaged our soils a lot, and it's quite difficult, I think, in a very capitalistic society to say invest in the soil. It's, it's much easier to say invest in greenhouses, invest in vertical farms. And so we have we have a couple of different lenses that are preventing that. And in, and, and in fact, let's go back to the bottom line here, uh, the, the financial bottom line. Are we paying for nutrition? When we go to a store, do we pay for nutrition? Is that what we're buying? I don't think we're really buying that. We're, bu we're buying the color of the product. We're buying the packaging. We're buying the branding. We're buying the, the taste that we expect in some cases, but in some cases not. In some cases, we're just buying the fact that it's available in the winter. And so you have farms that may have higher nutrition products, but they are not able to compete because consumers are voting with their dollars for different things, not nutrition. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about consumers, what do you think, how important is it to raise awareness and just to explain what vertical farming, for example, is, or in general, what um, new technologies can can bring us regarding food quality and nutrition. So do you think it would make sense to just show more visibility of these new farming technologies? I, mean, I think in, in the early days, especially when I was in the Association for Vertical Farming, I used to think, you know, we need to let everybody know about this. We need consumers to value this. So when they go to the store, it needs to be you know, grown in a vertical farm and be labeled in that way. But as I've done more market research for my clients, and as I've, I've observed more of this and matured in my professional experience, I don't think consumers care. I mean, I think consumers spend less than a second, you know, pretty much looking at the products that they buy. I mean, I know, I know myself when I shop, you know, it depends on the product, but some products I'll take more time to think about. I'll always, I'll try to go for local. Like to me, I think that's really the most compelling thing that I'm looking for. Even for me, organic doesn't really convince me. Um, I'm, I'm looking for things like pesticide-free, 
um, and local and looking for things that I feel like are going to be clean. But even then, my decisions are quite fast. I'm certainly, you know, I might be interested in a vertical farming label, but the vast majority of people are not going to be interested in that, in my opinion. I think our market research data suggests that they don't really care about it. So if you're if you're on the farming side, you should probably focus on um, marketing different things. Now, I think that policymakers, investors, the people that put the money into things, the people that make uh, the world work from like a, you know, from that sort of scale behind the scenes, they need to know about this. They need to understand its impacts. Um, and in some ways, they became aware of it um, as it sort of had its rise yeah, through you know after the 2010s all the way through 2020 and 22 and so much money went to the sector. You know, that that decade and a bit, a lot more investors, a lot more policymakers became aware of it. But I also noticed that they were subject to greenwashing, you know, like they were just like mar marketed only the benefits of vertical farming. So, you know, even for them who have the time to be more educated on it, they can barely take a complete message. <laughs> they can only take like part of the message and they sort of run with it. And that created a lot of damage, I think, for the overall goal, which is, you know, sustainable and more climate smart agriculture, right? That kind of didn't really help us. So, you know, changing consumer behavior is very, very difficult. And I don't think that consumers really need to know or care about the the techniques used to grow. They need to have a third party verification of something that does matter to them. And again, those things that I think do typically matter based on the data I see are, is it pesticide free? You know, is it is it local? Those tends to be a thing. And family owned. That's something else that consumers like. They like to sort of support local or family owned businesses. Mm -hmm. But would you say more regulation and as you mentioned, third party verifications or processes that verify the sources of the ingredients or food will complicate the processes and general consumer decisions or growing crops? So do you think it's maybe more difficult to introduce more regulations because there are already so so many regulations. Um, so I'm wondering, is this something you also do at Agritecture? So helping clients to navigate through these reg regulatory landscapes and policy frameworks? I think um, I think that there's a lot of regulations out there in agriculture. And um, I think in, in general, most of them are misplaced. You know, we're subsidizing a lot of negative agriculture, I would say, agriculture that's got negative impacts where we're subsidizing and sort of incentivizing still a lot of bad behavior. And then as there's been more of a shift to sustainability, we're we're now putting too much pressure on farmers to, you know, to act quickly and sort of blaming them when they have such a small piece of the overall pie. Very, very complicated question on regulation agriculture. But I would say in general, like this, the kind of subsidies we see for meat production is a huge part of the problem. Um, and the subsidies for a lot of the the inputs in many parts of the world that that are quite toxic for the environment are, are huge problems. And, you know, <clears throat> in contrast, vertical farming and what we're talking about is so small relative to those to those major, major issues. Um, I, I think that, again, I, I think I just need to keep it quite simple. L local agriculture is possible local agriculture can improve resilience can improve local economies 
can connect us more to our food, which is probably the best way for consumers to become educated, right? It's like if I can see more farms, if I can feel connected to the farms, I'm going to value that product more, which is going to go a lot further for me than a certification, which is why I like urban agriculture, because it's hyper local and you see it. You start to feel something different than this strawberry that's been shipped in from who knows where, you know, and I think that that connection to the food system, I think, is what could be bigger than the certifications even that I'm mentioning. And so we've worked with places like the city of Atlanta to talk them through and guide them on how to encourage more local production, how to create a, um, you know, they came up with this Atlanta brand. So how, how do we create a sort of galvanizing marketing, you know, name to attract our consumers, our residents to support the local farms. Um, in the Middle East, we're starting to see more local food being put at the front of the grocery. These are the small interventions that can make a big difference for the consumers. And I think policymakers getting involved in that to push local food is something, that's the kind of regulation that I think can make a difference to, to improve the food system in, in, in the ways that I'm, that I'm particularly interested in. Um, and I think certifications are important in, in, in some ways because um, because people make claims that aren't true. So, you know, like, like it's, it's just a matter of, of trust management, I would say, in that sense. It's like you, you do need to have some third-party oversight over that. Okay, so third-party certifications could help. Um, what role do you think does technology play in smart agriculture and vertical farming? Do you think it's like very important that we use more technology to track um, crop growth or which nutrients are needed for the perfect output. I think I saw one post on LinkedIn where farmers wear these uh, watches to, I don't know how that works, but they track some wearables. kind of plant growth. Yeah, wear wearables, you know, these are like IoT devices that are being put on animals or or on workers. Um, and that's one, one example of technology that's being used in the field. Um, so much of agriculture historically and even today is based on intuition. And so much of that intuition is based on historical performance, based on what your parents experience as farmers. That's not bad. I mean, that's like maybe not the greatest, but I have huge respect for farmers that do that and continue that legacy. And they've been doing it for as long as we've been around and keeping us going, right? So it's pretty incredible. However, in the face of climate change, that intuition no longer has value or has less value, right? Because the historical performance that you depended upon is no longer there. So technology can step in to help reduce some of that dependence on the past and focus more on what's happening in the present and what could happen in the future. Because we can use technology to uh, for various things, but one example would be data measurement, which is what you were talking about a little bit with the wearables. We can use technology to understand what is happening on our farms now, and what does the data tell us about the weather, about the soil, about what's happening in the plants, about what could happen in the future, so we could actually have some predictions. And so these data um, sources combined with the technologies like IoT and various data analytics solutions like ML and AI, they they combine to make the farmer smarter and stronger, more resilient. And for me, one of the most, um, you know, in indoor farming, this matters less because indoor farming is just tech. The greenhouses, controlled environment agriculture is just all tech, right? So there's always data embedded in that. We're talking about field agriculture right now, right? And like the, the, there's a big data and tech gap there. 
So the biggest the biggest example for me in agriculture in this was our first major field client, which was um, which was hop farmers in the Czech Republic. And these hop farmers have been growing the same way for thousands of years. And they um, they are starting to abandon their crops because of the volatility from climate change and droughts. And so we were hired by Microsoft and given a grant to develop sort of AI solutions for them, which was just such an exciting and crazy project. So, you know, these farmers, if you look at the last seven years, the volatility in their yields and the quality of the products is like, it's like just the, any business wouldn't work like this, just up and down, up and down, up and down. So what can we do to mitigate that volatility? What can we do to change that a little bit? So what we did is we installed a variety of sensors across six pilot farms. We installed things that have never been done before for hops, like cameras that look at the plants and take pictures of them. And you should use machine vision to tell us how the plants are growing relative to how they typically should grow. We combine that with weather data and satellite data. We look at the green coverage of the plants to give some idea of how the field is doing overall. We have soil sensors. We have SAP monitor flow sensors, so we know how the plant is growing. We have diameter sensors. I mean, really a lot of stuff that we're just like throwing a lot of tech to get the data. And what it allows the farmers to do is it allows them to uh, water more intelligently and spray more intelligently. So for example, we can predict based on the climate and what's happening with the plants, how vulnerable they are gonna be to pests, which means we can spray less pesticides, which saves the farmers some money and actually does improve the quality of the plant. We can also water at more intelligent times based on what we're predicting with the weather and what the plants need. So we can, you know, a plant will show you it's sick, but by the time you see that it's sick and de dehydrated, it's too late. These sensors, the technologies we had and the algorithms let us know before the plant shows on the outside. So we're able to predict droughts and or, or rather dehydration, so to say, for the plants beforehand. So that makes a big difference for these farmers, you know. I think I will say that the costs of these technologies are still too high for the farmers. You know, these 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 all this equipment was basically subsidized and paid for by Microsoft and Asahi, and and the farmers wouldn't be able to do it without it. However, now we have a case study that we can build upon that policymakers, technology companies, farmers themselves can think about to create budgets, to create solutions, to get this across more farms themselves. Not to mention that the data lasts forever. So now we've got new data sets that we can learn from and adapt from and even um, algorithms and you know machine learning models that can basically learn even when we're not working with them. They can just keep learning. So these are these are really exciting innovations in, in, in tech. One example. Um, another really big example, which we don't have to go into too much detail, is <clears throat> the fact that you know historically a lot more people worked in agriculture than are getting into agriculture now. So what are we gonna do about that? Well, automation and technology allows us to grow more with less labor. So I think part of it is just necessity. You know, it's not, we, we have to adapt to those realities. It's not really a climate change issue, but it is a real issue affecting our farmers and our ability to grow all the food we need in the future. So the big, the big issue is um, making sure these technologies work for the farmers and making sure the costs get down. And again, I think that sort of relates to what we talked about with vertical farming earlier. It's like a lot of the things we're investing in now in agriculture are for a future that's going to be much scarier from climate insecurity than it is now. Thank you very much for sharing all these informations. I think I have one last question. Um, what trends and developments do you anticipate that shape the landscape of climate smart agriculture? And what do you think, how is agriculture positioned to lead and adapt in this dynamic field? 
<sighs> I mean, one trend that has both helped us and harmed us is the investment trend. You know, I think like as investors start shifting their attention to uh, climate tech and ag tech, the rise of that, you know, we were there to do a lot of due diligence on those projects, especially in the context of controlled environment agriculture. So, you know, we had built a practice around planning these farms and providing data for them. So when the investors were looking at them, we were primed to help them make smart investments or not invest in bad investments, which I'm proud of the work we did there. But like with any trend that went away, there was a downturn that happened in vertical farming, which many might not be aware of, but, um, you know, basically many vertical farms have gone out of business. They've, they haven't been able to raise more money. Interest rates have gone up. VC investors have moved away from it. Lots of reasons for that. We could talk about a lot more. So we 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 suffered as that declined. We've really had a hard time as a business as that investment um, client type has, has sort of gone away. Um, but I think that the foundation of our work is our methodology to answer complex agriculture and sustainability business questions. And I think that that foundation makes us very agile for the future. And I think that our work has adapted in the sense that in replacement of that investment client work, we are now working on a lot of city planning and thinking about food systems from fresh planning at the beginning. And I love this work. Like this goes back to what agriculture was really about at the beginning, you know, like what does a city look like that is planned for food security how can we plan for these farms? How can we plan to, to include them and strengthen them and connect the whole system together with even circularity, things like that. So, you know, it's sort of there's ebbs and flows. And I think that our company, our greatest asset is our commitment to our mission, which is really to accelerate the transition to climate smart agriculture and help farms be more profitable, um, but also our agility. You know, we, we, are, we are agile to those ebbs and flows as much as we can. And it's very, very hard running um, a, a business that you know has a mission like that. But again, I think our agility is our greatest strength. And I'm confident that our methodologies can be applied to other parts of the food system beyond just uh, controlled environment agriculture as demonstrated with our with our hops projects and, and some others as well that have been happening. But that's really that's really the truth of it is like, you know, the, the the trend is is a double-edged sword. You know, it helps you in a in a, for a little while, and then and then when it goes down, you're, you're sort of hurt by it. So you have to really be be agile to adapt to that. I hope that answers your question. It's an interesting question, but that's my answer. Yes, thank you very much, and uh, thank you as well for our conversation and the interesting insights and all the information you shared with us today. I really enjoyed talking to you about the current state of urban agriculture and vertical farming, with all its possibilities and challenges. Um, thank you also for giving insights into your personal journey and agri-architecture. If this episode has piqued your interest and you have more questions, check out the website of Agritecture or LinkedIn of Henry. Um, to everyone listening, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to hear more insights, don't forget to subscribe to the Imperial Business Podcast. And if you have any suggestions or know the perfect guest for us to interview, please drop us a message at podcast.greenminds at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and see you soon.